Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast with Deb Zarco, episode number six. Hello, and welcome to the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And I am your status quo crushing host, Debo Zarco. Want to know more about me? Check out my very cool website at debozarco.com. And that's D-E-B-O-Z-A-R-K-O.com. And while you're there, sign up for my list that you'll have immediate access to all of the latest and greatest paradigm shaking and moving. So I don't know about you guys, but I can't believe that we're already six episodes into this podcast. And what's even more exciting is how quickly it's growing and growing and growing. What I've noticed is that there's listeners from all over the world, which make me want to send out a big woohoo to you all. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm actually deeply grateful to each and every one of you out there in listener land. You're downloading, listening, sharing, and helping us break free from the confines of the current dying paradigm. So let's keep the momentum going strong so that we can collectively co-create the beautiful paradigm of authentic expression, acceptance, divine love, and compassion that's being birthed as I speak. And please remember, this podcast isn't for or about me. I'm just the willing conduit, living my purpose and eagerly doing what I'm being guided to do to shift us out of the, the current masculine disaster of a paradigm and into the beautiful new era of the authentic, peaceful, purposeful, and passionate divine feminine paradigm that's currently emerging. And a quick side note that's really important. When I refer to the masculine feminine, I am not speaking about the physical bodies of a woman and man. You see, every one of us, regardless of gender, have both the divine feminine as well as the divine masculine within us. The problem is that we've been overdosing on the masculine for far too long and the imbalance has put us into a rather um, precarious place as a species. And as the saying goes, too much of anything is not a good thing, especially when it threatens the very survival of life on the planet. So that's a rather stark reality check. Um, And this podcast is about truth, but more importantly, it's about hope. So we're actually going to interview a wonderful man today. Peter Russell is somewhat of a spiritual rock star. And I'll admit that I was actually a little nervous when I met him for the first time in September of 2012. The the beauty of that is that it didn't take long for me to get over it. His genuine warmth and caring easily broke through the nerves that had me elevate him on a pedestal that he truly wanted nothing to do with. So the story is I'd actually signed up for a week-long residential program at Virginia's Monroe Institute, where he was uh, co-facilitating with another wonderful spiritual teacher, Karen Malik. The two worked so synergistically together to create a beautiful and very powerful program called Exploration Essence. And I can honestly say that my life has never been the same since that program. And being in the presence of both Peter and Karen for an intensive full week of meditation and discussion helped me access and reveal an even, uh, an even deeper core part of my essential being. Peter has a really interesting background. He began as a rather unlikely spiritual guru studying mathematics, computer science, and theoretical physics at Cambridge University. 
And over time, he became increasingly fascinated with the human mind and changed his course of study to experimental psychology. This eventually led him to India, where he studied meditation and Eastern philosophy with the likes of Maharishi, along with many other inspirational spiritual teachers. And if you know anything about the Beatles, you know that they hung out a lot with Maharishi. So Maharishi, I guess, is another one of those spiritual rock stars. And Peter has also studied consciousness very extensively. And as written in his Huffington Post bio, his mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate their teaching on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. Peter is also the author of eight books, including From Science to God, The Consciousness Revolution, Waking Up in Time, and The Global Brain. He's the creator of the fascinating documentaries The Global Brain and The White Hole in Time. He's an inspiring speaker, empowering facilitator, which I say from personal experience, and he's also a really, really kind human being. And today's interview is, it's really, well, they're all inspiring and every single one of them is so unique. And This one is no exception. Once again, another inspiring interview. And we tackle some really important topics, including how to deal with despair given the state of the world in today's times, the threefold acceleration happening on the planet today, and are we leaning towards catastrophe or higher consciousness? That is the question. And lastly, we talk in depth about what is essence. As always, I promise yet another hour of inspiration with a man who lives from the very core essence of his own being. So enjoy today's interview. So thank you very much, Peter, for for being here today. Very, very grateful. And you're in the UK and I'm here in Ottawa. So this is is very exciting. Early for me, mid-afternoon for you. And... um, I wanted to just say, like, you've been a real visionary in the study of consciousness and the mind for for many years now, and have built a really, really fascinating life as an author, a speaker, and a film creator. And you've also inspired so many people over the years, including me. And I'd like to take a step back in time before you became the Peter Russell of today. So what was life like for you before your your uh, purpose and your calling was revealed to you? Ah, depends how far back we go. I suppose really going back to me as a teenager, that's when I was living in quite a different world. Not completely different, but then I was fascinated by science, by mathematics. I loved it. And I thought I would grow up to be a scientist of some sort or other. I had a sort of passing interest in consciousness, but I think only as many teenagers do. You know, I sort of, I dabbled a little bit in hypnosis and, you know, was fascinated by, you know, what you could do by spinning around for a long time and things like that. But I think, you know, that wasn't unusual. Although I I was also, I remember being fascinated by yoga and things, because this is back in the early 60s we're talking about now, and yoga was just being heard about in the West. And my idea was, you know, fakirs lying on beds of nails and people who had incredible power over the mind. And yoga, yogis were these people who, yes, really had these amazing powers and could do these feats. And, you know, did they, could they really do the Indian rope trick? And so it was like this fascination really with the sort of supernormal or paranormal, incredible powers. Um, wasn't seen as a spiritual thing back then, I think by hardly anybody in the general public but that was just a passing interest my main interest as I say was physics and particularly mathematics and I would spend hours like just working equations solving them drawing out graphs and computers were just beginning to happen then and 
they were still working with vacuum tubes. The transistor hadn't come online with computers really at that stage. And I was actually building my own computers out of bits of wire. I was in my dad's garage sort of putting things together. And before I went to university, I actually had a job in computing doing some some actually quite interesting work. And so I, I thought that's where I would be going in computing. So I went to Cambridge, studied mathematics at Cambridge for three years. And also in theoretical physics, mathematics and theoretical physics are virtually the same course in Cambridge. And in the third year, I was doing more theoretical physics, but it was it's really just the mathematics of the universe. And that, I thought, was where I was going. But then I just got more and more fascinated by, by the mind and the fact that we were conscious. And it slowly dawned on me that studying physics and mathematics was not going to tell me anything about consciousness itself. And I, I got to this stage where I could solve Schrodinger's equation for the hydrogen atom, which is meaningless to any, <laughs> any non-physicist. But it's absolutely fascinating from a scientific point of view. It means from pure mathematics, you can start deducing that hydrogen should exist with the properties, the chemical properties it has. And that's a great intellectual achievement. You can't solve Schrodinger's equation for helium. It's too complex because you've got four particles. But for two particles, you can do it. And what struck me was, according to current models, you know, the universe began with hydrogen. We well, didn't begin with hydrogen, but hydrogen was the first element to be created. And then out of hydrogen and helium came all the other elements. And from that came molecules. And from that came life. And from life ultimately came human beings, and here I was, a human being, studying hydrogen. And it sort of occurred to me, this sort of fascinating, um, not quite a paradox, but fascinating situation that hydrogen had evolved into a system that could actually do the mathematics of hydrogen. And how had that happened? And I realized nothing in physics was going to tell me that. I couldn't even work out the equations for helium. How on earth could we, you know, understand how hydrogen got to this stage of understanding itself? And I realized we were like the universe's way of studying itself. And I just got more and more fascinated by, by this, and that there was consciousness in the universe. And nothing in science predicted that any of us should ever be conscious. We may be able to sort of understand how you know, stars evolved and how life possibly came into being and how life evolved. But none of this ever said that any of it should be conscious. And yet consciousness is the one thing we cannot deny. The fact that we are conscious, experiencing beings is, if you like, the absolute truth. We, you know, we can doubt, almost we can doubt everything else. I mean, listen to this, you know, we think we're hearing, you know, whatever it is we're listening to, you know, tape, a speaker, a computer, whatever. We could all be sitting in a virtual reality. But if we were, we'd still be conscious. And that just, I just got more and more fascinated by the fact there was consciousness in the cosmos. And so decided to, I suppose I just became less and less enthusiastic about the mathematics I say less because I, I still love it and I still follow theoretical physics and what's happening in math, although it, most of it is so even way beyond me now. But I thought, okay, maybe what I need to do is study philosophy. But in those days at Cambridge, philosophy was really, as I put it at the time, just the study of dead philosophers. And I wanted to sort of do philosophy to get my mental hands in there and sort of work out these things and deal with these, tackle with these problems firsthand rather than just read what Plato had said or Nietzsche had said or whatever. So I didn't do philosophy and I did psychology, um, experimental psychology, which what's called neuroscience today, thinking understanding the brain would really help me understand consciousness. And I learned a lot about the brain, 
how it functions, perception, memory, how it works with the body, how the neurons work, the biochemistry, all of that. But nobody was really interested in consciousness, why it was there. And at this time, I'd sort of begun dabbling in Eastern philosophy, realizing that these were the people who'd probably really tackled consciousness. That the way to look at consciousness was not you know, strapping EEGs on people's heads and looking at the electrical activity underneath. All that's doing is just you know, studying the physical world. The way to study consciousness is to actually observe it, to dive in there and watch one's own experience. And I just got fascinated by what was going on in the East. And a lot of a lot of them were talking about meditation in one way or another. So I started looking for different meditation practices and trying various things and came across TM, Transcendental Meditation. This was about the same time the Beatles got involved. And I liked it. It worked for me, and I got fascinated by it and ended up going to India to, to be with the Maharishi. I was actually invited to go and be with the Beatles on their stay there, which would have been quite an experience but actually I'm glad I didn't because it turned out that was much more of a sort of party <laughs> and when I got there after they left it was a much more serious place we really dug in deeply with him just questioning um, you know all, all his understanding of consciousness and delving into Indian philosophy it was absolutely fascinating and that was if there was any turning point that was probably it. There wasn't any major aha like some people have. There's no sort of road to Damascus, suddenly flash of insight. It was a gradual dawning, but a lot of that happened during my time in India. And I think two things. One, realizing there was something to spirituality. As a kid, I'd teenager, I'd rejected religion. About When I was about age 12, 13, I went through the process of confirmation in the English church, the Church of England. And that's sort of, you're meant to be confirmed as a member of the church. And I realized that I was actually meant to believe this stuff, the Nicene Creed. I thought you just chanted that on Sundays. But no, you're actually meant to believe it. You know, that you believe in one God, the Father Almighty, who created heaven and earth and all this stuff. I thought, what? I can't believe that stuff. And so I... I'd rejected religion. And in India, I began to see that spirituality and religion were very different things. In, in the way I saw it, it was like religion was, was the dead embers of spiritual teachings. There'd be many spiritual teachers who'd seen something very, very important about human consciousness. And it had changed their lives in one way or another, and they'd wanted to share it with other people. But as they'd done so, and partly got passed on from one person to another, it inevitably, bits got lost, bits got added in, and it sort of got absorbed by the culture of the time, and, and really just lost, and all that remained was sort of words and misunderstandings and misinterpretations. And I, was, I got more and more interested in what was that essential wisdom that so many different teachers had come across. So that got me really interested in what was spirituality. And at the same time, I began to see that so many of the problems in the world came back in one way or another to human consciousness. They're either because of human attitudes, human decisions, human values, what we think is important, or else there were problems that had arisen, but we were so caught in our beliefs about what should happen or our need for security or control we weren't actually dealing with the problems so it seemed that almost everything came back to human consciousness in one way or another and yet it was the one thing we never looked at we always looked at how do you solve the problem out there rather than wondering why did we create this in the first place and that really was the motivation i came back from india really motivated to explore 
what was the essence of spirituality and share it as widely as possible. And that's really been my life since then. It's gone through many phases since then. But I think the underlying the underlying motivation has been that exploration to try and distill the essential spiritual teaching, which comes up again and again and again, and find ways to disseminate it in contemporary terms. So that's a brief history. <laughs> <laughs> the Coles Notes version. <laughs> well, and it's it's fascinating because it sounds like your journey started with very linear thinking and slowly evolved into uh, this beautiful spiritual expansiveness that you're you teach now and I was in a program with you last year uh, where it was all about exploring essence and I would uh, I'd love if you could define essence and what you feel must happen for humans to connect to this this authentic part of our core being. Mm. Yes. I mean, essence, the way I would define it is, in a sense, the essence is what is it that's always there? I mean, the essence of our consciousness, the essence of experience, the essence is, it, it, it's, it's almost like the core and it's interesting, the root word of essence coming from Latin is, is our beingness. I mean, esse is, comes from the verb to be. So it's like, it's that beingness. And I suppose the real, one way of talking about essence is it's our pure self, that self that is knowing experience, that's, that's knowing this experience right now of listening to this, that's knowing the experience of what's going on around you. But that same self was, is the self that was experiencing yesterday and experiencing the world 20 years ago. It's that sense of beingness, which is always there. It's always present. That's our essence. And it never changes. And it doesn't really have a form and that's that's why we miss it. It's something which when people realize what we're talking about, it's something that's so, so familiar because it is us. It is our essence. But because we can't sort of define it or pin it down easily, what we do is we look into our experience and our experience has form. And by experience, I mean our perceptions of the world, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're feeling, our sensations, the thoughts we're having, the feelings, the emotions that are going on. These are all forms which appear to us. They appear in our mind, if you like. They are experiences we have. And because they have form, we can, we can relate to them and um, begin to understand them and process them. But what we, what we get so caught up in doing that, we don't notice this formless quality of being, which is always there, which is noticing the thoughts, noticing the feelings, noticing the experiences. Without that essence, we wouldn't be experiencing anything. So, I mean, probably these simplest way to define essence is just the the know the knower of experience or the knowing of experience it's that sense of being which I say is always there but we don't we don't recognize it because it doesn't have a sort of a form we can identify with and yet yet we know it so so clearly and so deeply and i'm going to shift gears a little bit I'm going to uh, go to your book, Waking Up in Time, which was a very profound read for me. And I know that it was originally written many years ago, and yet its content is still so pertinent today. And actually, perhaps even more so, as we seem to be accelerating either towards annihilation or spiritual awakening. 
So now if you were to rewrite this book today, do you think there's anything that you would change or add? Interesting question, because I sort of, I'm toying with the idea of rewriting it. Um, I think actually the, the basic principles, the, base, the basic thing I sketched out hasn't changed at all, which is really looking at how evolution has been accelerating from day one, from the moment the universe was born. There's been this acceleration in development. And what we're seeing in the speeding up of life today, you know, we all see that in terms of just, you know, how busy our lives get and we have to get new software every six months or whatever it is. And things are just changing, moving faster and faster. This is where the acceleration has got to now in our lives. But it's not just a 21st or 20th century phenomena. It's something which has been building and building and building all through the history of evolution. And what I was saying in the book was this is going to go on. It's going to continue. It isn't like life is this busy now and this is how it's going to be in the future. It's going to be even faster in the future. There's no stopping it. And I think if I were rewriting the book now, I'd focus more on that aspect of, of where we're going because I see the future is going to be one which is which things are going to be happening faster and faster and faster in all in all areas of life. And that's what fascinates me. We see it in science and technology. That's that's where we see the speeding up. Just you know, how many of us twenty years ago imagined the internet? It was just just being started and there weren't even graphical browsers. It was all text, the internet. Well, the, the, the internet was there, sorry, back in the early 80s. But the World Wide Web was just starting 20 years ago. And none of us thought it was going to be, you know, gaming, shopping online, listening to our music in the cloud. None of us saw any of that coming. And, and here we are, 20 years later, we take it for granted. And given that things are accelerating, I don't think any of us really can see where we're going to be in just 10 years' time. We just we can't see the acceleration, and also we can't see what new creativity, innovations are going to bring, what new discoveries are going to bring. We, we can't see that far into the future. So we are moving faster and faster into a world which is almost going to be like magic to the world today. I mean, I sometimes think, you know, what would Mozart have thought if you presented him with this little little plastic thing? He wouldn't even know what plastic was. And you, and you said, hey, you put these two things in your ear. And um, he'd hear a symphony probably, you know, almost as perfectly as if you we were actually in the concert hall. What, what, would he, what would he make of that? I mean, all he could say was, you know, it's magic. He wouldn't have any concept of what was happening. And the same way, I think the world technologically in the future is going to be, be magic to us today. And we will be able to do things which, you know, we could hardly dream of in the present day. So, so that acceleration is happening. That's the whole scientific, technological acceleration. And with that, we have the repercussions of our technological acceleration on the environment. Um, Clearly, I mean, things like population is accelerating. The growth is beginning to slow down now, fortunately. But that's because of it's been accelerating because of medical advances and advances in sanitation, those sorts of things. But, but probably the most interesting and concerning acceleration is the acceleration in our consumption of energy, particularly in our consumption of fossil fuels, because what that is doing is accelerating the rate at which we are putting CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. And that's accelerating the rate at which the planet is warming. And we are now beginning to notice that. There's still debate over how much it is warming, but there's no doubt that human carbon dioxide production is changing the climate. And we don't know where that's going. And that's still accelerating. We are not decreasing our consumption of fossil fuels at all that is still accelerating and that's going to be a real challenge and you can say that almost every problem that we're facing in the environment 
comes down in one way or another to the acceleration of technology. On its own, you know, the planet could cope with a moderate production of CO2. It could absorb it. But we're now producing CO2 and other waste products thousands of times faster than the planet could absorb. And so that acceleration is also behind the crisis. And I think a lot of people who look at the acceleration are looking at you know, where the technology is taking us. And they're almost blind to the fact that we are also accelerating into catastrophe as well. And then there's a third acceleration which is happening, which is the acceleration in consciousness, in conscious awakening, in the interest in actually waking up to who we really are. And that's that acceleration, you can really see how it, it started taking off in the 60s. When I started getting involved in this, it was, as I say, yoga and things were seen as weird. By the 80s, it was completely acceptable. In fact, in the, in the 70s, I was teaching meditation in corporations, but the corporations didn't want anybody to know about it because they were so scared of what the press would do to them. But now it's growing to the state where, you know, companies like Google and Yahoo and other companies like that, PayPal, are proud to announce they have meditation rooms and they're teaching meditation to their employees. And, you know, we have something I think it's like 30 million people in the U.S. practicing yoga. All this stuff has suddenly become respectable. And you just look at the numbers of books being produced in this area. I mean, we have whole book, most store, most, sorry, most cities or even small towns have bookstores devoted to spiritual development in one way or another. And so this is also accelerating. And that's what fascinates me. So I, said, I think the reason we are in this crisis, one of the reasons as well as acceleration, is human consciousness. Our, we've been stuck in a short-sighted, materialistic, self-centered mode of looking at things. And what spiritual growth is about is about actually freeing ourselves from the ego, from that self-centeredness, and beginning to function more in tune with the whole. And so, th so that is the real shift in consciousness that we need to solve our problems. So I see we have these three accelerating trends coming together, the acceleration in science and technology, the acceleration towards catastrophe because of the unbridled use of technology towards our own self-centered ends, and the awakening of consciousness which can free us from that. And that I find really exciting and fascinating, and I have no idea how it's going to play out. But we have never, ever been in this situation on the planet before. We've never been, we've never had such powerful technology. We've never been in such a state of crisis. And we've never had the potential for so much awakening. And how would the world be if we had people who were, you know, awake, free from fear, with love and wisdom in their hearts, really uh, making decisions? As I say, I, don't, I have no idea how it's going to play out, but we are moving into the most uncertain, most fascinating, most challenging times ever to have lived. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And what I've noticed for myself is that I, uh, I mean, I see both sides, what feels like an awakening to some degree. Um, at the same time, there are some days when I actually feel a lot of despair and hopelessness over the state of the world. So yep. I find that it's really, it's, it's just, it's like this seesaw effect that's going on inside. Mm. And I'm wondering, um, you know, do you ever feel that same despair, the frustration, the anger? Because I know when you wrote Waking Up in Time, it's a very passionate book. And if you do feel that despair, how do you personally find your way back to that that core essence inside of you that keeps you in that state of peace and hope hopefulness? Ah, there's a lot in here. Um, I think, in a way, 
it's a um, we have to somehow live with both sides, and it's easy to get into denial of the despair. I see quite a lot of people saying, "Oh, everything's going to be okay. I have faith it's going to be okay." Um, I think that's sort of pushing that despair down. I think we we need to allow it in. Um, and this is something which comes out of so many psychological teachings, understandings of the mind, that if when we repress this stuff, it actually doesn't go away. It just controls us more. It was, in fact, Jung who said, Carl Jung said, what you resist persists, meaning that what you push down in your consciousness, it stays there and it controls you. And that's why so many different psychological models in one way or another encourage people to actually get in touch with these darker feelings, whether it's your own shadow, with the despair, with your fears, to actually get in touch with them, get, get to know them, begin to experience them more fully in your own consciousness is the way to actually gain some freedom from them. It doesn't mean they go away, but we can, by seeing them, we can begin to stand apart from them and not be controlled by them so much. Um, I mean, I, one way I see this in my own life is not quite despair, but it's relevant is, is when I get angry. Very often I will sort of push, push the feelings of anger aside because I feel if I open up to these, I'm going to be rude to somebody or whatever, start a fight or something, and all hell's going to break loose. And so I push it down. But if I just open up in terms of just seeing what's there, maybe just journaling about it, I feel this, this sense of lightness begins to come in, that maybe the, what I'm angry about hasn't changed, but I'm no longer controlled by the anger. I can see it for what it is and begin to, in my own beingness, rise above it. And in terms of blame, you mentioned blame. I, I don't blame anybody, really, these days. I, I suppose I did in the past. I don't see there's any blame to be apportioned. It's like this, this is what happens when you have human beings living in a um, fairly self-centered, materialistic mode of consciousness, using increasingly powerful technologies. We get in this sort of mess. There's no, no blame. There's no blame. This is what happens. I mean, people say, oh, you know, was it the Industrial Revolution or was it the, you know, the loss of the matriarchal society? Was it you know, um, the Renaissance? Was it the beginning of agriculture? People have all these different ideas of where we went wrong I don't think we ever went wrong. I think this is just what happened. It was inevitable that we would get deeper and deeper into this sort of crisis, bringing us to this point of realization that something deep has to change in our consciousness. So, so these days, I, I, don't, I don't feel blame for anybody. When I look at what's happening, you know, what politicians are doing or the you know the lack of action that's being taken on, on climate change I can I can feel despondent about it but somehow I can just see you know these people everyone is just trapped in their own limited way of functioning ultimately doing the best they can and none of us can foresee really the long-term implications of what we're doing. Let me just take one example. When we started burning fossil fuels abundantly with the Industrial Revolution, we started burning coal and then we discovered oil and started burning oil. Nobody saw that was going to lead to global warming. In fact, the first person to even suggest it might was a Norwegian scholar back in the late 1800s. And he suggested it and Nobody took him seriously that this could actually happen. 
And it's really only in the 1950s that people began to start thinking about it. And the first papers were really written on it in the 1970s. We just didn't see what was going to happen. So I don't think we, we can't blame anybody for that. So how do I, your question, how do I come back to my own, what were you saying, my own balance? That uh, essential core, that, that sense of peace inside of you that keeps you connected to the hopefulness. Yes. Um, I think for me, it's, it's the basic practice of my own meditation, which is not meditation as one normally thinks about it as trying to get anywhere or make anything happen or doing anything, but just whatever I'm experiencing, you know, if it is, you know, feeling despair or something or, or something that's just going on in my daily life of just recognizing that, recognizing my own essence, recognizing, you know, I am the being that is aware of this. I am not the thoughts that are happening. I am not the feelings that are going on. It's easy to get caught up in the stories, but I am actually the one who is noticing the stories going on. So just coming back to that sense of essence we talked about earlier, that sense of beingness, when I come back to that, there is no, um, there's no sense of, bad or or even what's right or wrong there's just this sense of beingness and that sense of beingness is always at peace because it is just observing noticing it itself doesn't get caught up in what is going on what gets caught up is our thinking mind it's our thinking that says this isn't good i want this this is going to happen i'm going to feel i'm going to suffer the world's going to suffer or this is hopeful whatever this the thinking mind that creates all these different moods and emotions and fears and hopes when we step back to that essence which is just the knower it is not involved it is always in itself at peace and as i said before there's that sense of lightness that's there and and a sense of joy in life it's like you know deep down at that level everything is okay that doesn't mean to say that everything is okay in the world i mean i really want to make that clear it doesn't mean to say oh it's all okay no there's lots of things we need to do to you know, really help this world along, help other people, even help ourselves. It doesn't mean the situation is okay, but there's this deep sense of okayness in my own being. And when I function from that sense of okayness and peace in my own being, then I'm much more in a much better state to see what needs to be done in the world, in my own life, in my relationships, whatever. Hmm. And so you've got a, a daily meditation practice, I'm, I'm assuming. Oh, it's more moment to moment. Um, I do like to sit each morning when I wake up, after I've had my cup of tea or whatever, and, and to meditate, to just reconnect with that, that sense of being essence we talked about earlier. But it's not just in that formal sitting, for me, the meditation, in that sense, is a training for taking that out into life and learning how, whenever I'm caught up in something, um, feeling off-center, how can I, in that moment, wherever I am, come back more towards that state of being in my own life? So... My, my, my day is also has many what I call micro meditations, just sort of pausing, stopping, say, ah, uh, ah, uh, here I go again, caught up in some story, some thought system, and I've lost touch with myself and just bringing myself back to center. And I remember last year, you and I had a chat about um, 
the silent retreats as well. You mentioned that you do uh, the silent retreats on a fairly regular basis. And I haven't had a lot of experience with it. I've had, you know, occasional, you know, days or half days with it. And it's is that it helps me really connect to that essential place within that helps me feel, again, very level, peaceful, grounded, and hopeful. And I'd love if you could just share your own experiences with silence. Yes. As I said, I, I love to take long periods of silence, um, several days. That's why when I go on retreat, it's usually, you know, I find four or five, even up to 10 days is valuable. The first two or three days, it takes me two or three days to really settle down. And I notice there's a lot of fatigue. I sleep a lot. I don't realize how tired I am. And I think almost everybody I know who does retreats has that experience. We think we're fine. We don't feel we're tired. We feel energetic. And you stop. And after a day or two, this fatigue starts coming up. I think we all have this sleep debt just because of the the world we live in, the things we have to do, our busyness. And I sort of do a lot of just drowsiness, sleeping, and then after two or three days, come out the other side of that. And there is such clarity then. And it's like part of I look forward to you know, that drowsiness coming in order to work through that. And on the other side, the mind just is so much clearer. And I realize how dull my normal day-to-day consciousness is in comparison. And that's when I find it fascinating. The mind is much quieter then. I wouldn't say completely silent. There's still, you know, there's still thinking, but I'm not caught up in so much worry, concern, or excitement, or planning. And I can begin to just notice my own self how it works notice how the mind gets caught up in things and for me i call that going into my own laboratory for me my own research is sitting in those in that quiet state just watching the mind begin to get up to its tricks but rather than be caught in the tricks and taking them seriously and getting upset about this or all excited about this and planning this or all this stuff you just see it starting into its tricks and you just notice it and almost just like smile inwardly and say, okay, not going there. And I would say almost everything I've learnt about the way consciousness functions in the last 10 years and so much of what I share in my workshops and things has actually come from sitting in silent retreats and watching the mind. It's just my personal fascination. So it sounds like you've established a rather uh, well-defined observer. Um, I wouldn't say established um, because it's there. It's there already. It's. Um, it. I found ways to actually recognize what is always there. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's nothing changes. That's what's so fascinating is nothing changes. It's just, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's an old analogy that Indian teachings that says, you know, when the sun is reflected off rough water, all you see are scattered patches of light. But when the water becomes still, you see the reflection of the sun. Mm. You see, see, ah, there's the sun. And I think, you know, what they're alluding to here is the self is always there. It's always just always there observing. But when the mind is ruffled by thoughts about this, worries about this, these sorts of feelings, good or bad, whatever they are, we're caught up in all these, all these passing things that are going through the mind. But as the mind settles down, the observing self, which has always been there, becomes more apparent when we begin to see, ah, this sense of I-ness, I realize it was always there, just the sun was always there reflecting on the water, but you begin to recognize 
consciousness for what it is. Instead of identifying with the forms that appear in consciousness, you begin to identify with consciousness as the knowing of experience. Now, I want to shift gears again here. Yep. Um, listening to you speak, you, you're very aware of the, of the gloom and the potential catastrophe that may be uh, looming around the corner for humanity. But what I'm, what I'm picking up more from your conversation is the hope. And I'd love if you could just share what it is that gives you this hope in the world. I, I have hope for what people can become and how people, how people can change. And, and the rate at which, as I said, the rate at which the consciousness awakening is, is growing. We're a long way from having a world in which everybody is fully awakened. We may never get to that stage. But the fact that things are moving gives me hope, and the fact they can move. And I see, I mentioned just, you know, the number of people getting involved in, in this area gives me hope. The numbers are growing so fast. Um, I look at the changes which have happened in our culture over the last, what, 40, 50 years that I've been you know, involved in one way or another watching it. It, it is, our attitudes are so different now. I mean, I look at the, the kids today and, you know, a lot, a lot of them, yes, they're caught up in the material world as any of us, but there's also a lot of them who are so aware, so wise, so caring in ways that none of us were 40 years ago. And that gives me incredible hope to see just the way things are changing. And it's not that because I am 40 years older, I am 40 years wiser, 40 years more awake, or whatever it is. Our whole culture is 40 years wiser, 40 years more awake. And so we are, we are moving together in this. And so a lot of the younger generation you know, I have conversations with them. They're in the same place of seeing and understanding as I am now. And so we are all 40 years more advanced in this. And this too is accelerating. And we don't, we don't really see that. The, the national media press doesn't, doesn't see that, doesn't focus on what is happening. We tend always to focus actually on what's going wrong most mm -hmm. of the time. So, so that gives me hope to actually see, yes, things, things are changing. Um, the other thing that I find fascinating and probably gives me the greatest hope is we are coming to a clearer and clearer understanding of what this awakening of consciousness is about. And as it gets clearer, it gets simpler and simpler and simpler. I know when I first got interested in all of this and started reading Indian philosophy, it was all sort of, A, it was sort of mysterious, but it seemed to be, you know, a lot of work. If you really, you know, meditated and did all your practices and all these other things and read all these texts, then maybe this life you would get enlightened if you really worked hard, but if not, maybe in two or three lifetimes in the future. And, <laughs> and whatever enlightenment was, it was going to be like this amazing thing that happened to you that was ecstatic and transforming and totally out of this world. And I think over the years, and also, you know, every teaching had its own version of that as well. It was all, they would almost like argue about what it was really like, what enlightenment was, etc. I think over the years, We've been coming closer and closer together and seeing it, as I say, as simpler and simpler. And I think we are in this incredible global phenomena, which has never happened in human history before. 
partly because we didn't have the global technologies of communication, telephone, television, radio, internet. None of that existed before. So when there was a spiritual teacher, that teacher just had his influence on his local community and that then spread out and sometimes took off and, you know, spread into a whole country, whatever. Today, what is happening is, is there isn't one single spiritual teacher. There are thousands. You could almost say there are millions and millions because we are all teachers to each other. We are all learning from each other, whether it's just the way we share things in our family, in our workplace, or you know, with you, you're writing, doing podcasts, whatever. We are all sharing. We're all learning from each other the whole time. And whenever you have that mutual learning, that fuels acceleration. It's positive feedback. Whenever in systems theory, whenever there's positive feedback, you get acceleration. So as we learn from each other, then the process of awakening is accelerating. But also what we're what we're learning is this thing of it getting easier and easier, simpler and simpler. And as I've been alluding to in the past or mentioning well I don't see it as a question of getting to some amazing higher state of consciousness where everything changes. It's more just recognizing actually what is and how to step out of being caught in a ego-centered mode of consciousness, be able to step back into that state of inner freedom, which is why in an Indian teaching, it's often called self-liberation. We are liberated from the machinations and concerns of the ego mind. We're just stepping back into our true self. And that, as we're seeing that, it just gets simpler in terms of understanding what's happening. And the practices get easier and easier and easier. And as a result, I think, People are also waking up faster and faster and faster. And so today, when we look around the sort of, um, whatever you want to call it, the spiritual, the global spiritual community, we're finding many awakened spiritual teachers on the planet from our own culture, people who've just spent their time studying, meditating, observing themselves, who are now our own, you know, self-created gurus in, in the true sense. We don't have to go to India or wherever or Tibet to, to find spiritual teachers. I think there are very wise, awakened, fully liberated teachers amongst us, and they are coming faster and faster and faster. And that gives me great hope. And we are all seeing saying the same thing it's like we are collectively honing in on that essential spiritual wisdom i remember i was i was giving a talk a while back and at the end of the talk um somebody stood up and said to me um he said you know what is it you're saying that's different from what everybody else is saying and my response was nothing i hope because you know, if I'm saying something different, then that's why I'm out of a line. It's like, yes, we are all saying the same thing. And that is what is significant, is we are all pointing to the same thing. And as it gets simpler and easier, it's clearer and clearer what we're all pointing towards the same thing. What you said, you said when we learn from each other, uh, there's an acceleration of awakening. And I have to say that that's absolutely true in my own life. And when I was at your workshop last year, there's been a significant acceleration of my own awakening. And my own observation in my own life is that indeed it is actually so much simpler, as you said, too. Because mm. I no longer feel as much need to uh, reference information outside of myself because I feel like it is all within it's all within and it's just it's beautiful to be able to listen to other people and get different perspectives and open up the frame of reference even more but you're 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 you know it's totally bang on when you said that 
We learn from each other. It awakens us and that life is so much simpler. I find that now for myself, my biggest um, means of connection is just being in nature. Mm. So simple. Yeah. And I'm going to segue into the last question that I love to ask everybody. Okay. (laughs) Okay. If you had a magic wand and could wave it over the planet, what kind of world would you create? I think the world I've been pointing to in all of this, I think a world in which we are no longer, our thinking is no longer dominated by the needs of a separate self that's um, driven by fear and worry unnecessarily. The, The separate self, the ego we sometimes call it, is a very useful function if there's some physical need or danger that needs to be addressed. We need to move into a mode of consciousness which is looking after our individual organism. In our culture, we hardly ever need to be in that mode. Sometimes, but hardly ever. Yet, we're in that mode nearly all the time worrying about how we're doing, fending for ourselves, what are other people thinking of us, what do I need, am I doing good, etc., etc., etc. That's the functioning of the separate self. And as I said, that's what I think dry, is driving our culture into calamity and causing so many of the problems we're facing socially, environmentally, politically, whatever. So I would like to see a world in which we, all of us, had actually stepped out of that. We weren't being controlled by that way of thinking. And when we're not controlled by that way of thinking, then what is there instead, as many teachers have said, when you let go of fear, what is there is love. And love, and along with love comes wisdom, caring, respect, So I would like to see a world in which we were actually, all of us, in touch with our own essence so that essentially we were at peace in ourselves, not needing to be looking out there in order to find peace the whole time through what we have or do or to find happiness through what we have or do. We would actually be intrinsically at peace, content, still doing things in the world, but doing what was needed in the world in order to make the world function more and more smoothly. We'd be doing, we'd be called to action by the needs of the situation rather than by the needs of our egoic separate self. And doing that from a context of love and caring rather than fear and concern. I love this question because it always offers the most beautiful answers. And that was, <laughs> that was beautiful, Peter. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been good talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Seriously, Peter, thank you so much. I know that you're a busy, busy man, but I really, really appreciate your time. And I want to say again, I really appreciate everything that I learned from you last year. I hope you... Um, I hope you know how awesome you are. Oh, thank you. No, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I'm, I just see. I'm, I'm just. I'm just this guy doing what I do, struggling in my own way, sharing what I find. But it's really, you know, it's really heartening to know that it touches people. So thank you for that feedback. Well, I, I'm serious. I. It really. That program was so profound for me, and I didn't even realize it until. I mean, I knew, I knew that I was really deeply affected when I was there, when I was experiencing it in the moment. On the drive home, I started to think of other things. And, uh, you know, there were many things that started to come up. But it was, it was the months that passed afterwards, I realized more and more and more how deeply affected I was by that program. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for being you. And, and for, for following your calling and living your purpose and doing what you do in the world. I'm so grateful that you, you're here, and I'm here at the same time with you. Yeah, 
Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. Yet another amazing interview from a very inspiring man. And Peter's website is a wealth of information with articles on science and consciousness, spiritual awakening, and the earth and environment. For starters, I mean, there's a lot more there. It's just jam-packed with so much awesome information that it's, uh, it's worth not only perusing, but just grabbing a cup of tea and just having a really good look around. Peter also offers many talks, workshop recordings, and meditations for free download. And his website is peterrussell.com. And that's Peter, P-E-T-E-R, Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. So double S, double L.com. And as always, I'll be posting this information as well as the links to his books and online meditation course in the show notes on my website at debozarco.com. And remember, when you're at my site, sign up and join the expanding community of conscious paradigm shifters. And when you sign up, you have immediate access, your free pass to a beautiful and very powerful meditation that will help you connect to your life purpose. How friggin' cool is that? And it's free. And we need a world full of people who live purposefully from the authentic core essence of their being. So since you're listening, I'm talking to you. So with that, I conclude yet another episode of the Unplug podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, and then get out there and change the world.